0: First, you think, is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. So I want to pick up on the Georgetown story. The enslaved people had been imprisoned on land in Maryland that helped to fund the operations of Georgetown University. The article reports, as I said, that they were required to attend mass for the sake of their salvation, but they were also whipped and sold. According to the Reverend Thomas Murphy, a historian at Seattle University who has written a book about the Jesuits and slavery, the Catholic Church did not view slaveholding as immoral at that time. The sale in 1838 generated about $3.3 million in today's currency. And in what appears to me to be an almost inconceivable and brutal irony, the priests were so concerned about the future of the souls of the people that they were selling, that provisions were placed in the sale documents that required the buyers would ensure that the slaves would continue to be able to practice their Catholic faith. Families would not be separated, and the money raised by the sale would not be used to pay off debts or operating expenses of the university. Needless to say, the people doing the research reported that none of those conditions were actually met by the buyers. The outcome of this research, driven in part by student demands, was the establishment of a reparations program uh, by Georgetown University that that included an apology from the university, the establishment of a foundation to raise money, a number of financial incentives for the descendants of the enslaved people, and other programs to redress the wrongs of the past. It's a story well worth studying and pursuing. Making amends for a wrong that one has done by paying money to or otherwise helping those who have been wronged has a long history. That history is included making reparations. In my world as a practicing lawyer, corpse could require reparations in the form of financial damages to compensate victims of personal injury or contractual wrongdoing. In the world of restorative justice practices, acknowledging the harm that has been caused and making amends and rectifying the wrong is a form of reparations. Reparations have sometimes been required from those who have started wars and then lost, such as the Versailles Treaty after World War One. In other words, This is not a new concept. The application of that concept to our history of racial injustice and oppression has a long history also and has become energized in our time as the issue of racial justice has moved to the front of our consciousness, including proposed legislation in Congress, which has yet to pass. What is clear is that our history of racial suppression and violence has left deep and lasting scars on all of us. When I was first introduced to the concept of reparations related to our history of enslavement, I thought of it almost entirely in terms of money for historical wrongs and frankly was unable to grasp how this was going to work out. The invasion of this continent by largely white European settlers and the ensuing decimation of the indigenous peoples, the history of slave trafficking, the actual concept or creation of the concept of race The mistreatment of other minorities by the white male ruling class permeates our history. It was so overwhelming to me that I had no idea what real action might be taken. Fortunately for me, that has slowly changed over time. Authors like Jennifer Harvey, Michelle Alexander, Isabel Wilkerson, Brian Stevenson, and many others have clearly articulated the moral arguments for reparations ta Coates published an article in the Atlantic Magazine in 2014, for example, that set out the case for reparations by telling the stories of those who had been enslaved. More recently, the Movement for Black Lives, as a part of its policy statements, uh, created a demand for reparations. And they started that portion of their demands with the following statement. We demand reparations for the past, and continuing harms, the government, responsible corporations, and other institutions that have profited off of the harm that they have inflicted on black people, from colonialism to slavery, through food and housing redlining, mass incarceration and surveillance, those institutions must repair the harm done. The article goes on to describe five demands and then links those demands to a workbook on how to proceed. But once again, those demands were at such a high level requiring massive governmental and institutional action that I couldn't get my head around them, frankly. Probably the major breakthrough for me personally came when I read the demands of the National African American Reparations Commission. It includes a section in our criminal injustice system, which includes the following. Ever since the forced arrival of the enslaved Africans in the Americas, policing and penal policies and practices were enacted to discipline, control, and acclimate black people to systems of exploitation. The criminal injustice system which evolved was and is a direct extension and protector of the interests of the corporate and political elites in the U.S., from one away slave proposals vagrancy laws, chain gangs, the convict lease system, to relentless police violence, killings, and mass incarceration. Racist policies and practices have decimated black communities and severely constrained civil and human rights and the socio-economic and political aspirations of black people. The war on drugs with its attendant racially biased police policies and practices is only the most recent manifestation of this long-standing war on black people. Apologies from elected officials, leaders, and institutions responsible for fostering and benefiting politically from this unjust system are not sufficient. The damages to black families and communities must be repaired. This actually opened a path for me related to the work that I've been doing, attempting to make systemic changes that would derail the cradle-to-prison pipeline. It also dovetailed into my family history. So I wanna take a step back and share with you some of my some of that history. I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I was a war baby, having been born in 1944. My parents were both raised on farms. My mom's farm was a century farm located just north of Marion, Iowa on Highway 13. A century farm means that it was acquired uh, during the middle part of the 19th century after we had stolen land from the indigenous people and colonized that land by the Western movement of largely white European settlers. My mother's family was among those and that farm is still owned by my mother's family. My dad grew up on a small farm outside of La Plata, Missouri. La Plata is a small town in the northeast part of Missouri. It was a sunset town and had a sign that I can remember that made that fact very clear. A sunset town or city was a place that you were banned from being after sunset if you were black. They existed all over the United States, not just the South. The Harrison side of my family immigrated from Scotland in the 17th and 18th centuries. There are a lot of Harrisons in the United States. A goodly number of them settled in Jones County, North Carolina, and became farmers. My great-great-grandparents, William and Mary, owned a farm in Jones County. They had 15 children, according to the old census records that I looked at. In 1856, William and Mary sold their land and moved to Missouri. The deed from that sale was executed on the 28th day of March, 1856, and transferred the land to F.G. Simmons for the sum of $2,000. An interesting side note that might interest you is that this deed was signed only by William. That was an era when women had no rights in property. My ancestors purchased a farm with the proceeds of the sale of their land and the personal property. And it is that farm that my father grew up on outside of La Plata, Missouri. On the same page as the deed that I looked at, there was another transaction that was uh, included. The document described a transaction sale by which William's brother Amos sold, and this is the quote, a Negro woman slave named Matilda and a certain Negro boy slave named John to Calvin Coolidge Koontz for $1,250. So far as I have been able to determine, those two transactions are legally unrelated, but they are definitely, for me, connected. I know from the 1840 and the 1850 census records that my great-great-grandparents, William and Mary, enslaved eight people. The census records from that era, before the Civil War, listed the enslaved people as personal property and included the number, but not the names. William's brothers were also enslavers and the census records that I looked at made the following listing. Daniel, three, Amos, five, Franklin, 45, Ira, nine, John, 13, and Thomas, 18. All of those people are a part of my extended family. I've actually been unable to find any direct record of what happened to the eight people enslaved by William and Mary when they were sold, or when they sold their land in North Carolina, but I do know they were sold. The deed that I received from the sale uh, from Amos to Calvin Kuntz represented actually a normal transaction at that time in our history. When enslaved people were sold, it was treated as the transfer of a chattel, in other words, personal property, like a car. When I called the records clerk in Jones County to ask about the records showing the sale of the people enslaved by William and Mary, I was told that the records, if there ever were any, were destroyed during the Civil War. My father did share on more than one occasion over the years, the oral tradition that survived in our family and was passed down within my family about the people that William and Mary sold. And that story went something like this. When the people enslaved by my ancestors learned that the farm was being sold and that William and Mary were moving to Missouri, those folks begged and pleaded to be moved also. The family narrative being that William and Mary were such kind and gentle and loving owners that the people who they enslaved loved them and could not stand the thought of being separated from them. I can imagine that my ancestors' reported concern for those eight people was about the same as that of the Jesuit priests at Georgetown, expressing concern for the immortal souls of the enslaved people that they sold. We all know that such self-serving stated concerns were and are a convenient lie. My family narrative ends with this generation. My dad died in 2008, and my mom died in 2015. By that time, I was fully engaged in retirement and the ongoing work of attempting to change the systemic residue of our country's history of colonialism and slavery. I had also read Jennifer Harvey's work and was a convert to the idea that we in this country owe reparations for the past and the ongoing actions that have maintained the caste system described so eloquently by Michelle Alexander and Isabel Wilkerson. The question still remained, however, is that what could I as an individual do in my community to acknowledge the harm that my family has done, make amends in the form of working to heal the open wounds that are so apparent all around me? And that was a real challenge. The Movement for Black Lives Demands focus on such a high level of institutional change that I simply cannot get my head around them and still can't, frankly. I wanted something that I could do personally in my home community, Des Moines, Iowa. Once my thinking came to that point, the answer actually was pretty straightforward. Because of the racial justice work that I have been doing since my retirement in 2011, and the intersection of the Georgetown story the sale, the deeper understanding of reparations theory that Jennifer Harvey helps provide, and the connection to the work that Ellen and I have been doing and others, and the inheritance that I received from my parents, all of those things kind of merged together in what looked to me to be a path forward. So what I did was I set aside a portion of that inheritance an inheritance that I can actually directly trace to the sale of enslaved people in 1856 by my great, great grandparents. And I'm using it to support the programs that Ellen and I are engaged in. Each of these programs are designed to make systemic changes in how we deal with the disproportionality in all of the injustice systems in our country. They include a public school conflict resolution program that is called Let's Talk that is sponsored by AMOS, which is an institution this church supports annually. It includes efforts to participate in an effective juvenile court diversion program to keep juveniles out of the criminal justice system. And it includes the Just Voices program, which is an extension of the Racial Profiling Project, an organization that this church has chosen to support in this fiscal year as a faith in action partner It actually feels right. This is what Jennifer Harvey says about the moral logic. The moral logic of reparations isn't just for white Christians, of course, but in the moment and movement that young black leaders are bringing to every city across the nation right now, all people of faith have a particular opportunity to step up to lend their voices and social power to this moral course. If they do, that's one way we'll know whether, at least among white Americans, this moment can be truly different. I personally believe that the moment can be different, and I think my church must be a part of making it different. It feels very much like being on the path that John Lewis described when he said, Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day. A week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. And I want to thank you, my friends in this church, for helping me walk along that path. So may it be.